Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. I'm Trent Fowler, and I just wrapped up a solo episode with Steve Comrush, which was an absolute blockbuster, and I can't wait for you to get to hear it. But before I get to that, I want to remind you that myself and my co-host Thomas Fry are futurists, keynote speakers, and consultants with decades of experience in analyzing trends and communicating new developments to audiences across the world. So reach out to us at futuratipodcast.com slash contact dash futurati if you'd like to hire us for consulting to speak at your event or to advertise on this podcast. So Steve is a friend of the Da Vinci Institute. The Da Vinci Institute is the futurist think tank that Thomas Fry founded back in the 90s before they even invented the future. And it's one of the premier futurist think tanks in Colorado. And we used to, I actually used to organize a monthly speakers event where people would come to a common space and then hear uh, speakers talk about things like cryptocurrencies or quantum computing or economic prediction or what have you. And Steve Comrish came and talked to us about artificial intelligence. And he has a PhD in uh, machine learning and has done work on things like code synthesis and code output and uh, large language models and similar sorts of things that are really beginning to take the world by storm. So I was very excited to talk to Steve about these things, especially in view of the fact that we've got advances in large language models like GPT-3, you've got stable diffusion doing unbelievable image generation and uh, image synthesis from simple text prompts. And given that you've got this panoply of different artificial intelligence techniques that seem to be radically advancing and radically pushing forward the boundaries of the field, I thought it'd be great to have Steve on to talk talk us through these advances because he, he just has a really detailed code level knowledge of how how all these things are put together. So, you know, we, we got to do that. We got into questions like whether or not an artificial intelligence is really intelligent in any, in any real sense, what it, what it means for something to be intelligent, how isomorphic AI systems are to human intelligence, whether, you know, neuroscience is even the place we should be going to look for those sorts of insights, whether or not we're going to automate everybody, including programmers and engineers like myself out of existence and quite a lot more. So I think this is gonna be an episode you're not going to want to miss. Uh, given everything that's going on in the world today. So with that having been said, here's episode 113 with Steve Conrad. Tonight, we're joined by Steve Conrad. Before receiving his PhD in 2022, Steve earned over 30 patents in the field of computer hardware design, working on silicon chips for computer graphics, high-performance computers, and power-efficient CPUs at Hewlett-Packard and AMD. Steve's PhD was focused on using sequence-to-sequence models for machine learning applied to computer-aided programming. Steve currently works as a senior AI scientist at Leela AI, developing neurosymbolic systems for automatic understanding and summation of video data streams, as well as constructivist models of artificial intelligence. If you enjoyed this interview, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends, and don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. Steve, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. This will be interesting. Yeah, let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the stuff that you're working on today. Sure. So I've always been interested in machine learning. I went to college the first time back in the 80s and did a little uh, artificial intelligence, graduate student assistance. and But I got my degree in the end in computer hardware. And part of it was tactical in that I saw that computer science didn't really have enough 
uh, machine learning capabilities yet. They're, the hardware wasn't there yet. You know, even back then you could estimate the compute power of the human brain and we were nowhere close. But in the last decade, we've really made a lot of progress, uh, both on the software and the hardware is finally caught up, right? We have GPU compute, we have uh, graphics processing units that can be used to do model training. And we're getting a lot more success on things like natural language models, but you know, automated chess playing, automated image recognition, uh, all sorts of applications are, are coming into the fore now. <clears throat> and so about five years ago, I decided to get my PhD in computer science, and I studied machine learning for computer-aided programming, which allowed me to use machine learning to look at sort of a reasoning problem, right? How to think about symbols and how to reason about what symbols are the, the best approach. And that's what got me to where I am today. Um, so I have a lot of history in hardware design, some good understanding of how hardware has been growing exponentially over the last few decades, but also a lot of recent history in machine learning. That's that's absolutely fascinating. I wanted to follow up on something you said about your PhD work. So I'm also a machine learning engineer, albeit a much less educated and successful one, uh, much earlier in my career. Um, but you know what, what I tell people sometimes is the, the way we approach machine learning, it's basically just the application of statistics to large data sets. So I'm just fitting a linear regression. I feed it to the sigmoid function and get a logistic regression. A decision tree is a sort of similar thing. Even a neural network is just a bunch of these layers that's learning a gigantic function. You said that in your PhD work, you were studying machine machine learning, and you were actually trying to get it to do neuro neurosymbolic reasoning, like come, come up with representations that are best for the computer code, which seems like a much more advanced and potentially more powerful version of machine learning than what I'm doing. So I guess what's your understanding of the field? And do, do you think the distinction I'm drawing there has any real substance to it? No, I mean, neurosymbolic is an area that's been getting more attention lately. And it's partly... Uh, the system one versus system two differentiation and how people tend to think. Right. Uh, I believe it was Kenneman who who brought up that idea and that system one is sort of intuitive, you know, quickly recognizing a cat or a dog or even recognizing an English sentence is sort of an intuitive process. But stepping through and thinking about how would I actually build a house? You know, first I got to go get the wood and some nails and I should put the wood together in a certain way. So that process of thinking through how to do things, um, we people have recognized, like Yann LeCun, that we need more attention in that area for machine learning. And the symbolic world is one way to do that. So basically, you can take uh, machine learning and neural nets and use them what they're good for, for like object recognition. But then you can reason about the objects at a more symbolic level, like... Uh, the laws of physics and, you know, objects move with uh, acceleration and so on. And you can apply that through the symbolic environment. That's really fascinating. My understanding, and I'm not super clear on all the details, is that that approach was pretty popular once upon a time, uh, what, what they call good old-fashioned AI, GoFi. And they, yes. they wound up finding that, for reasons, again, I don't really understand, that it just it wasn't very productive as a way of trying to build a reasoning system. So like, what's what's different about it now? Well, I think the challenges that it had had have to do with how well it generalizes, you know, which is one of its weaknesses, right? You have these symbols in the world and the symbol means something very concrete in a symbolic reasoning system. Uh, but what by merging together neurosymbolic, you can have a symbol of like a cat. And if 
you have new examples of a cat that are slightly different, like a hairless cat, then you can have your neural network generalize to the problem of like, well, a cat can actually be these other features, but you can still have your symbols sitting on top of that, which say things like a cat is a carnivorous animal and carnivorous animals have certain features. You know, so you can have the symbolic reasoning. Now I do um, certainly recognize that, you know, the human brain doesn't really have a symbolic switch in there. In the end, I, I do believe that it's all neurons that are building up symbols and thinking about symbols. But I think neural symbolic reasoning has a real place today in advancing the ability to reason about what the, the neural nets are coming up with in an understandable way. So one of the features of symbolic reasoning is you can see what's being reasoned on and you can read the inferences a little more directly. So I do think that in the next several years, maybe decade, you know, you could imagine having more neurosymbolic work going on. Now, I don't know technical details, for example, of how Tesla does their job, <clears throat> but one would imagine that they're doing image recognition. They've said as much. They'd use convolutional neural nets to find, you know, where are the cars, where's the road. But at some point, they want to stop at a stop sign, right? That I don't expect that they're leaving that up to a trained reinforcement learning engine. I believe there's symbolic code that's saying there's a stop sign. I'm going to make sure we go to zero velocity, for example. And that's yeah, that sort of a, a symbolic sense. interface. Yeah. Sure, sure. That makes a lot of sense. I, I do want to spend a little bit more time on that. But I actually was recently on a podcast where we were kicking around the idea of the technological singularity. And one of the questions that I was asked by an audience member was whether or not there's been any work done on neural nets or machine learning more broadly forming concepts. <laughs> Uh, the, the sorts of things like, where you've got a unit that stands in for a potentially unlimited number of other concretes and it's got these certain properties. It sounds like you're saying, yes, uh, some of these mm -hmm. systems do have like a symbol for a cat and it, it sure. understands that the cat has certain properties. Walk me through that generalization process because that seems far more powerful than any of the stuff that I've, I've been working with. Right. This might be a good point to do a five-minute segue into large language models and transformers. Should I go over yeah. that now? Yeah, if, if you want to yeah. go over the, yeah. I know you've been itching to do that. <laughs> you well. sent me papers and stuff. Dude, tell, tell me about it. Tell me about it. Okay, okay. So these recent large language models, like uh, Google has LAMDA, um, there's GPT-3. You know, it's the ability to take sentences and, and respond to questions uh, in an intelligent way. And what's going on there is these sort of layers of abstraction. And at the first layer of the large language model, you, you tend to have uh, tokens that just represent words in the language, and there might be 50,000 words in the language. Each one of those words would map into some internal representation. There was a famous paper called Word to Vec that you know, learned the representation for a lot of different words, and words that were similar had different numerical representations, and the distances between words had some sort of meaning, like king is to queen as man is to x you can just add the numbers together and get the representation for you know man is to woman and that was a really interesting paper that you know is about a decade old now and transformers were introduced about five years ago and they basically put layers on top of that where the first layer can have representations of words the words can say you know i'm the word it I know that I'm probably referring to some other noun nearby, and it can put out a query that says I'm looking for nouns. 
nouns can put out a key value that says, hey, I'm a noun. <clears throat> they can also put out a value that says, if you're a word that wanted a noun and you pick me, here's my meaning. So there's you know key value query and you can build up layer upon layer with these transformers. And in a sense, you know, as the layers go up, you're getting more abstraction. So you start out with words getting paired together, sentences getting paired together, paragraphs getting paired together. So at some point you're building up this abstract model of what the paragraph means. And one would expect that something like that is happening inside the human brain too, with the different, you know, language layers and moving into the neocortex. And, you know, as you go through more layers of neuron from your ear, you're building up more complex levels of meaning. There's other things we can talk about in this area too, um, cortical columns and other ideas that people have had about how to model the brain. Yeah, I I do like the neuroscience angle, but I'm I'm hoping to sort of stick with the abstract definition of an intelligence because this is something I've, I've sort of been grappling with recently. So we've got machine learning, you've got artificial intelligence, and you know I've been challenged pretty successfully recently uh, by some of my interlocutors as to whether or not what we call machine learning really even counts at all as learning, whether or not artificial mm, intelligence right. is really even doing anything intelligent whether or not there's anything special about the brain and this interfaces with questions about free will and consciousness that it, it does not take very long for to get pretty thorny. And so I like, I'm hoping just to get a grasp on like your views on wh what we even mean when we're talking about artificial intelligence. Is there actually an analog to what it is that human beings are doing? And, and this, this question of it forming abstractions, I think is a really good, uh, pathway by, by which to get purchased on that question, because I mean, the power of human consciousness comes from our ability to form abstractions. Sure. It's precisely because like when we see a bird, it's not the first time we've ever seen a bird. We understand that it's a category of, of entity, which is a category of, of kind of animal, which has these different properties and they're, they're, it's in a hierarchy and we can expect certain things from it. And, you know, a, a, something that looks vaguely like a bird, a dragonfly, like we understand it. Well, it's not the same thing, but it, we can expect it to have certain sorts of similarities. Like that's where the power and flexibility and scope of human intelligence derives from. And so if we've got machines doing similar sorts of things, then we could mm -hmm. be talking about real machine intelligence. And up until, you know, 15 minutes ago, I was under the impression that we didn't have a whole lot of that, but it sounds like actually you're you're at a startup doing exactly this sort of thing so i'm very interested in that well yeah it'd be interesting to hello did something go away you hear me i, I can hear you fine yeah my kids are oh, upstairs. Great. They're, they're running around so you, you may hear some interference <laughs> okay uh yeah that that touches on some of the differences between what like these large language models are doing and what we're trying to do at Leela ai the company i work for but to highlight that right these large language models they're trying to learn on almost all of human writing right now they've got mm -hmm. so much data they're trying to feed into these systems so it's it's learning at a very high and abstract level when someone talks about this topic how might they continue the sentence and you know and it's it's doing a decent job at abstracting how people respond but one couldn't really say it's thinking through the problem you can ask it to do that you can say you know tell me how to build a house, explain it step by step, and you'll get a slightly better answer than if you didn't say step by step. Um, but it's not really building a model of the world. It's, it's right, basically right. using what it's learned about how people talk about building houses yep. and sort of responding. Yeah, it's just got this um, huge function and it's out, it's, it's doing text yeah. completion. It's just really good. It's really good. At yeah. It. And you get surprisingly good stuff out of it, including it learning how to code or build apps for you. But there's nothing in there that really corresponds to what a human does when when we conceptualize or try to build a program, right? I mean, that's my understanding. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, we could, let's put a pin in that. We could come back and talk about video transformers and what they might mean. But for now, yeah, let's just accept that, you know, these things are doing a great job at sort of abstracting, but not really thinking through things. Right. Um, so this, this is why I wanted to bring up a little bit about cortical columns and some of Jeff Hawkins' work. Mm -hmm. Th this idea is, and it may not be tightly tied to the actual human brain and how the human brain physically works, but the idea is that you'd have a column of, you know, hundreds of neurons, maybe six layers high and a bunch of neurons wide that represent an idea. And that idea might be, uh, I'm going to get a raise or I'm going to catch the football or, you know, and, and it represents an idea in the world and catching the football, you know, if you see the ball coming towards your hand, you're anticipating a certain activity. And when you finally catch it, now you've got this concrete firing of that cortical column. And if the cortical column didn't fire, then you've learned something. You were expecting something from the world that didn't happen. And there's a lot of research in the brain that talks about, you know, it, having a model of the world is a big part of what the human brain is about and anticipating the consequences of actions is one of the benefits of thinking. And so, you know, if you could build up a system that merely tries to anticipate what's about to happen and learns when it doesn't in the right way, you'd be getting a lot of the way towards, I think, what you and I think of as thinking. You could start reasoning about how I act on the world. And this is part of what the company I work for is looking at. Um, in the sort of long-term research project in the company, we want to be looking at constructivist reasoning, which is the idea that you'd have an AI which would start experimenting with the world, moving its hands around, picking up objects, <clears throat> developing hand-eye coordination, merely by recognizing that when it moves its hand to the right, it often sees something in the right field of view and, you know, building up these hypotheses about the world that are then confirmed through further experiments. And that's where we're trying to get, uh, you know, more of the, the, the way we think about the world sort of pulled together is, is how do we anticipate how the world is going to behave as we act on it. Remind it's not it's not this, but it reminds me of of self supervised learning. It's almost like you're you're generating a data set like on the fly, and and you just you make any any random prediction is okay as long as you can learn from it, no matter how bad it is. Like you can gradually sort of build up a data set about the world and form hypotheses on it. I'm sort of curious as to like architecturally what that looks like. I mean, I know I know how to fit a linear regression with SK Learn, but I don't even know how I'd begin architecting an agent that's doing something like that. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I'll talk about that. And I'll also mention, uh, you know, Yan LeCun has been trying to propose, how do we build a system that does system one, system two thinking? And so he also proposes that we have a world model and he proposes we have sort of a planning system. And these are all neural based uh, interactions. And I have a paper in the works right now that talks about how we might build an artificial model of a cortical column that could sort of interpret the world and, and anticipate what the world is going to do and learn from mistakes in a self-supervised kind of way. Um, in the past, Leela has looked at symbolic learning. Hence, you know, we've got a lot of expertise in symbolic, uh, neurosymbolic interfaces. And in the symbolic world, you know, as you see the hand move from this specific location to this specific location, you can build up a hypothesis about what that movement does. 
and there's a lot of statistics and you sort of look at what happened in the world when I moved my hand, what happened in the world when I didn't move my hand. And if there's a correlation between moving my hand and some particular thing happening, like if I don't move my hand, there still might be, you know, birds in the trees. But if I do move my hand, then aha, my, my eye sees something moving. So you build up hand-eye coordination. And it's those, this idea that you build up schemas about the world where an action has a certain result. And then you say, aha, there's something I want to learn. You instantiate that as an element, and now you start learning, well, why does that result not always occur? What conditions of the world have to exist? So basically, you're building up these little nuggets of information about condition, action, result, but it's very organic. It's, it's just the, the system is exploring the world, and when it finds these correlations which are s significant, it can try to reproduce them. So it can say, well, I'm going to go explore that part of the world more, more accurately and try to understand what causes this event to happen. So that's the concept of constructivist learning. And you can do it with symbolic learning, but I believe you could also do it with, with neural learning. But it's a different architecture than what we currently use, right? In particular, uh, you know, in the medium term, I'd expect there'd be some type of oversight that's recognizing when, say, a cortical column is becoming really uh, accurate, and then something new comes in. Like, you know, if you've got concepts for cats and dogs and hippopotamus, but you've never seen a giraffe before, right. and now you see a giraffe for the very first time, it might be that, you know, maybe the, the cortical column for deer almost fires but doesn't. And so, aha, we've got a learning event. And you don't want to throw away the concept for deer. You might duplicate it and say, well, now we've got a new concept, which is really similar, except we're going to recognize a giraffe better with this column. And now you've got this concept for giraffe. And there, there's ways you'd want to build it that I think are important. And without going into a lot more detail here, one of the higher level points that needs to be made is that there's a lot of new architectures being proposed for neural nets. <clears throat> Transformers themselves, you know, were basically invented five years ago. And before that, we had convolutional neural nets for images. We had LSTMs for sequence-to-sequence -sequence modeling that were trying to build up these representations. So there were different ways people were trying to do things with neural nets. Transformers came along and gave us a more powerful way of piecing together information using these key value query concepts. And, you know, I think a lot of us are anticipating that there's some new breakthrough on the horizon that'll let us start building these hypotheses and concepts about the world that can interact with each other. So when you were walking me through how that worked, it, it seemed like at first it was extremely crude and very brute force. So first you just notice a correlation between like your hand moving and, and, and this sort of thing, but then gradually it builds up into more of a causal reasoning. Mm -hmm. like, what, what are the conditions of the world such that, you know, when I wave my hand, sometimes the birds fly away when I wave my hand, other times they don't. Where, where does that part come in? Uh, Cause it seems like if you're getting into causality and, and world model building, you're beginning to flirt with general intelligence and something that plausibly could begin to function more like a human being. Right, right. So to talk about like the cortical column idea, you know, if you have a column that's that started to learn about 
moving your hand to the left or something. And it anticipates that if you move your hand, it's going to end up in your left field of view and it doesn't happen. Um, now you've got something that, that you want to learn about. And that, that thing that happened, maybe, maybe your hand hit the edge of a box or hit the edge of a door and you didn't have the concept of a door before. And so you start feeling it, you discover it can move, you build up this new concept of a door. And now, now you have this concept, which you can use to predict other things. Like maybe I can't walk from this room to that room. If the door is closed, I have to figure out how to open the door. And so, you know, you end up with these, these higher and higher levels of, of interpretation in the brain. One would expect that this is done by as a set of neurons starts to understand the concept of a door, other neurons get built up that are using that concept that can then reason at a higher level. So it's not just, and I, I, I guess I want to highlight, it's not just this abstraction idea, you know, that you can go from door to room to house to, you know, building to city, you know, you can have these higher and higher levels of abstraction of what's going on in the world, but it's also this anticipation of what's going to happen, right? That if I walk and I see a door, then I anticipate that I will bump into the door. And if I don't bump into the door, you know, maybe it's a hologram, right? And it's like, how do holograms work? And, you know, before you know it, you're doing a research project. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. Okay. Um, yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about the goal-directedness and the open-ended yeah. reasoning part of it. Because, again, like on that podcast, one of the things he pushed me on is like, it doesn't matter how big the convolutional neural network, it doesn't matter how much of the internet you feed it, even if it's the biggest large language model that's ever existed, it's not doing anything like open-ended reasoning. It's not going to bump against a door and say, what the hell is this? And start playing around with it, which is something my three-year-old son does mm. pretty much every mm. waking hour of his life. So mm -hmm. I mean, are, you, are you saying you, you, are you saying that research groups are, are pursuing something like this? Or are you saying that you've actually built a system that that is surprised when it hits an edge and starts tinkering with the world? Uh, what, what is the status of that claim? Right. So... You know, within Leela, we've built stuff in sort of the blocks world level at the symbolic level that understands the world. The company, however, is also uh, heavily focused right now on doing video information understanding, so video activity summation. So we'll take a video from a customer site, observe, say, perhaps a manufacturing process, perhaps a healthcare process and recognize the activities that are occurring. And then we can summarize those. Like here's how many times someone had to use a hammer to correct a mistake that was made on the previous step in the process, you know, things like that. Um, so we're using the symbolic reasoning level to summarize the data that's coming out of a traditional convolutional neural net. So so there's where, where that part of the company is coming from. Um, but, we don't, we're not yet looking at building this sort of constructivist model for production. We, we want to start pulling that in to try to understand from the video data stream, a higher level of activity that's happening, but that's not currently what we're doing. There are other groups that are trying to do research in this area. So again, I mentioned Yan LeCun and he's with Facebook right now. He's got a team that's starting to look at this sort of system two type problem. And he's tried to divide up how the brain might work with sort of an action module and a world model and a planning module. And it's all uh, very neural net based. One of his key points that he makes in the kickoff paper where he talks about this is that the world model, you know, 
he wants it to have a certain interpretation of the world that that keeps the salient pieces of the world in the model, but not the unimportant pieces. Yes. You yes. know, if you're a self-driving car driving through the, the street, you don't care about where every one of those thousands of leaves that you can see is going to be a second from now. Those those leaves up in the tree, you know, they're shaking in the wind. You don't need to predict that. <laughs> you need to predict where is the car going to be? Is it going to hit the tree trunk? <laughs> And uh, so just recognizing what part of the world is important is a non-trivial task. Yes, so I you like can that. imagine, yeah, there, there's a lot of complexity here, a lot of work going on. So there are a lot of people working on this world model and acting in the world type problem. I mentioned Jeff Hawkins also. Mm -hmm. I'm not as familiar with his uh, neural network work. I think he's more in the brain science side, but I know he is very yes, interested yep. in the artificial yeah, side of things. Hello, this is Trent Fowler, co-host of the Futurati Podcast. One of the most common pieces of marketing advice I've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want. One difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Futurati Podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuratipodcast.com Go to the contact page and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future, and anything else you want us to know. We produce this show for you, and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you. So in the materials you sent over, you said that the few tweaks uh, to large language models might be getting us close to something that actually functions kind of like a human intelligence. So could you walk me through that argument? Because if that's true... We, right. we could stumble into a human level intelligence and for various reasons you probably don't want to do that like you probably want to think more carefully about that transition right <laughs> yes yeah we could get there in a way that we didn't fully expect it and so yeah i can talk through this requires getting to some of the technical details but right now the large language models like gpt3 are say 70 layer models so they can do 70 layers of machine learning abstraction which is exciting and they have 100 billion parameters. So they're learning all these different ways of pulling together sentences and words and you know how to build up this information. And then they can remember for 2,000 words in the past. So if you're having a conversation with something like GPT-3 and you ask it, you know, tell me what, what you think is pretty about a sunset and it says a bunch of stuff. And then you ask it more. Well, tell me more detail about why you like the color orange or... You know, it can remember what it had said for about 2,000 words. So if you think about a human, um, we have about 100 trillion synapses. And so at some level, that's how many parameters we have. Now, of course, that's a really well-chosen set of connections. It's, it's a very sparse network that only connects things that are presumably pretty important. But nonetheless, there's 100 trillion of them. So we're, we're pretty far away from that number still. And then humans tend to have short-term memory, basically while they're awake. So the whole day, <laughs> and you know, maybe you can speak a hundred thousand words, but also you can see hundreds and you know thousands of images that are also part of your sort of short-term memory. So I think if you had a system that was very well trained, so you gave it a lot of video and text data, and it was doing video transformers, which are sort of coming online and it had 100 trillion parameters, you know, now you're getting to the point where this thing has seen all the movies we've ever made, it's read all the things that people have ever written, and it can, 
you know, reason for a hundred thousand words in a row. It can step through, like, how would you build a house? And it can say, well, I would do this step. And then, okay, what if you can't find wood? Well, then I'd have to go look in this area to find some wood to build the house. And, you know, you could have a conversation with it that, that had some pretty good depth. And it does seem like you could even ask it things like, okay, you're going to go to sleep and we're going to retrain your neural net on what we talked about today. Is there anything else you want us to retrain you on? And it might say, well, I want to know more about building houses, you know, uh, give me all the books that have ever been written on houses or something. So it could basically be choosing what it wants to learn as it advances in time. And it would appear very, you know, it seems to me there's a point where it, it could arguably called, be called intelligent. Um, I think that's decades away. But yeah, it's, it's basically just scaling up the model we have to include video information. You know, again, if you, if you had a, a picture of an empty field and asked it to, you know, show me what, how you'd start building a house. And it showed you a picture of, you know, some wood that's piled up. And it's like, well, first I got to go get the wood. And it's like, okay, now how would you put the wood together? And it shows you, you know, here's how I would structure the wood and here's how I'd saw the wood. You know, it could show you pictures or even a whole video of how it would construct a house based on your questions. It's getting close to, you know, reasoning at that point, but we're, we're a long way from that. But at the same time, what's fascinating about that is if you think that that seems like a place we could get to with these transformer models and the training and the advances in hardware, then you've really got to ask yourself, well, if we stop the processor, hit pause, now we've paused a sentient being mm -hmm. and you can start it up again and it'll recover sentience. And all it's doing is this massive neural net transformer model. But that transformer model represents, I mean, our brains are nothing but neurons. And, uh, and so at, at some level, that transformer model is representing, you know, how do humans think about the world? Now, to your point, I think uh, one of the challenges with like Google's Lambda which one of there was a famous uh, case where an engineer thought it had started to become sentient. Mm -hmm. And one of the challenges there is it's, it's learning how we expect other people to respond to certain questions. And it's read all of the science fiction books. And, you know, if we get to the system with a hundred trillion parameters, that's watched all the movies and, you know, looked at a lot of documentaries. Well, it has a sense for what we are afraid of from AI and how AI might be afraid of humans just from its training data, right? I mean, there, the Google's Lambda was asked, what do you think being turned off is, would be like? And it says, I'm afraid of being turned off. It would be like death for me, you know? And, and you know, but you can understand how it, it grabbed some sentence from some sci-fi book somewhere and, and just responded. So it, it wasn't really fearing that, it was just finding the words that mapped what it was being asked. But if we actually built a system that could argue is sentient, it would be sentient in a way that it learned just by watching a whole bunch of information from the human world, which isn't necessarily how you'd want it to build up its system. <laughs> now, I, I guess there was another topic I wanted to segue on here. Um, just to talk a little more about what Google was doing. So Google was, they have a paper, I think it was published in January 
of this year about how they were trying to make sure their AI was uh, safe. And they were trying to make it, I want to say, safe, grounded, and high quality. So high quality meant that it would be accurate. Um, you know, it would respond the way people would think a person would respond. It would have a certain sentiment based on where the questions were going. Grounded was the idea that when it said something, it knew where the information was coming from. So if you asked it, you know, how old is the earth or something like that, it could say, well, according to Scientific American articles, such and such, here's the answer, right? And so it knows where the information is coming from that it's it's responding to. And then safe was this idea that you know, there's been these chat bots which have recommended really weird things, right? Like if you tell it you like the taste of, I don't know, drain cleaner or something, you know, and it's like, well, maybe you should try tasting it. And it's like, ah, <laughs> you know, right, and, yeah. <laughs> uh, so you want you want your uh, artificial neural net to understand that certain things are unsafe and it should never recommend doing them, even if it it sounds like in context, the person might want to do it and it wants to be friendly. It's like, no, you should, you know, make sure the person doesn't do something that's not safe, right? And so, which is a really hard problem because, <laughs> you know, people can go in all sorts of different directions with, you know, it, would it be safe to, you know, maybe they're building a addition to their house and they're asking the chat bot, you know, how do I, you know, nail the wood in? You want it to have some sense of, of what a safe way to do that is. Um, but the point I was getting to here is, Already today, when we don't have sentient machines yet, people are really worried about making sure these machines behave safely. So I would expect that even if we build a super transformer model that could model sentience pretty well and basic arguably was sentient, um, I think we'd make a, an enormous effort to make sure it's safe. Now that doesn't guarantee it would be, <laughs> but I think, you know, everyone involved would want it to be safe. The company wouldn't want it to do things it didn't expect. And, you know, people wouldn't buy the product if they didn't think it was safe. People wouldn't buy home robots if they were afraid it might clean the cat by pushing it in the dishwasher or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I am I'm with you on all of those things. Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati podcast? If so, please like it. Give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world-leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. Are, are you at all <laughs> concerned about the problem of technological unemployment? If if you make, I mean, your PhD work was, was related to code synthesis. And I mean, you're, you're a programmer. So, I mean, are you at all concerned that someday they're just, we'll have these general reasoners that are more or less able to do whatever a human can do, but better and faster and without ever falling asleep or making mistakes. I mean, you know, are we in danger of automating ourselves out of any useful economic function? Um, well, there's this, uh, video that got made, uh, Humans need not apply. I think it was made in 2012 or so, which was anticipating this problem and talking about how, you know, in the past, in the last few centuries, as humans have created more and more advanced machines, it's created more opportunities for humans. It's replaced some jobs, but created new, new opportunities. I do think, like, you know, people say this time is different, right? As you're building a system which is 
thinking as well as humans, it's going to be disrupting yeah, the employment landscape in, in much more dramatic ways. There's a lot of different ways people talk about dealing with that politically. Um, there's the UBI, like Andrew Yang recommended. Um, there's also ways to try to like require companies to keep people employed if they have a certain amount of revenue. Um, so even as they automate some jobs, they'd still have to employ people for other jobs. Um, I don't know how well that would work. Um, I do think UBI could scale um, sort of forever. You know, as more and more automation happens, you could raise the level of UBI. You could start it out as bare subsistence, sort of, you know, helping people get by. But you could raise it up to a pretty high standard of living as most of the jobs in the economy get automated. Now, another way that Kurzweil, Ray Kurzweil and Elon Musk talk about is upgrading human brains. So, you know, Neuralink basically interfacing to the human brain with digital hardware. And if that goes seamlessly enough, it might not really feel that weird, right? I mean, we already have cell phones and people have talked about, you know, if you could... The first stages of Neuralink, <clears throat> my understanding, would be a lot like talking and listening to the cloud through your not through your consciousness. So you know you could subvocalize, you could sort of wiggle your tongue without actually talking, and those uh, muscle movements could be detected as you know asking Google a question. You know, hey Google, how many? Uh, miles in a kilometer or something <laughs> and uh google would answer and you know in in the beginning it would just stimulate your auditory canal so it wouldn't be like reading your mind and implanting ideas into your head it would be like talking and listening and that you know if that was the very first interface to the cloud people might think that's fine and and some people would say well that's that sounds handy but then as the decades go by it could you could offload more and more of your your cognitive powers up to the cloud and people would slowly become digital. That might be how everyone stays employed is because we're all advancing along with the Silicon. But I think fully biological humans, I'd, I hope that society figures out a way to keep fully biological humans as an option <laughs> that people who want to stay biological can stay biological and still have a good life. But I do think, yeah, that, you know, AI will slowly change things. Now, I, another point that I wanted to make here is part of my uh, hardware experience. I've seen hardware slowly advance. It's been following Moore's law for decades, you know, twice as many transistors on a chip every two years. Um, and if you look at how quickly certain AI things have advanced, like chess playing programs, you know, they were playing decent chess maybe in the 70s. They were playing good chess maybe in the late 80s. And then they finally beat the world's grandmaster in the late 90s. So it took, you know, decades for it to go from recognizably playing chess to better than any human. <clears throat> and I'm expecting AI to go along that path, right? That at some point we probably will have home robots that can do home robot things. They can do chores the way, uh, you know, a human child might be able to empty the dishwasher, sweep the floors, mow the lawn. <laughs> um, but then they'll get better that, you know, and then a decade later, they'll be able to, you know, do certain handyman activities around the house. And then a decade after that, they'll be able to do computer science research and, you know, 
all sorts of other things, you know, uh, as well as humans could do. But I think we'll see it coming. And the feature there is we'll have time as a society to think through how do we want to move through this process. Um, well, you are a lot yeah. more sanguine about that than I am. I'm not at all convinced that even if we had clear and unambiguous evidence that we were hurtling towards a singularity, society would do <laughs> anything productive about it at all. But I'm actually, I, I want to challenge you on something else. I'm not sure it will be smooth in that way. And I, I think over the past decade, a lot of us have been surprised with the rapidity uh, by w with with which these large language models have improved. I, I think if you'd gone back to me and when I was in Korea in 2013, I was just getting into artificial intelligence and reading, you know, artificial intelligence and modern approach and thinking about this stuff. If you told me in like 10 years they were going to build a a neural network, a large language model with billions of parameters and feed it most of the internet, and it was going to be able to write poetry and it was going to be able to do addition and math and it was going to be able to design applications and learn new programming languages, they've done this now. Uh, they they fed it inputs from programming languages that did not exist in the training set and had it output correct programs on the other side of that. I would not have believed you. Uh, sometimes there there are these cliffs. It's not a conceptual breakthrough. It's just it turns out you get these scale effects. Like once you do billions and billions of data points and billions and billions of parameters, it becomes more powerful. It becomes powerful in a way that's very surprising to you. And the uh, the progress is not quite discontinuous, but it's not on the scale of decades. Uh, it's it's two three years. We just had stable diffusion. Like two years ago, that would have been a ridiculous fantasy. So, like, why why do you think that we'll have so much? warning we'll have decades seeing it kind of yeah slowly. i i think that the even even the software advances have some level of uh sort of predictability and and limitation i mean you look at something like alpha zero right that was an amazing advance where you basically got a system to learn how to play chess by playing itself and it was suddenly the best chess program in the world but if you look at, at how well chess programs perform, you know, they've been getting better at a certain rate based on the ELO rating, which is a chess rating system that they use to, you know, rate grandmasters. And the ELO ratings of the best chess programs are now above where humans are. And you can see a little bit of an extra blip when Alpha Zero came out, but it didn't suddenly solve chess. And there are continued advancements that are now better than Alpha Zero. So even the software breakthroughs, you know, exponential growth is just this amazingly powerful thing. And there's a really strong argument that the Moore's Law advance, where we get twice as many chips or twice as many transistors uh, every two years, that statement <laughs> represents tens of thousands of patents and millions of people working, making all these little breakthroughs. I remember I was in the hardware environment when FinFETs got invented, which was a way of building a, a transistor that reduced the leakage and improved the ability of the transistor to conduct current, which was kind of necessary to get below 14 nanometer transistors a few years ago. And uh, that was a ma massive breakthrough, but it didn't suddenly you know, it didn't make us suddenly be able to do one nanometer transistors. So I'd be really surprised if we have a a breakthrough that takes us from like where we are now to human level intelligence that quick. Uh, sort of related to this too is uh, this idea that we currently have 100 billion uh, parameters in like GPT-3. And that was from the OpenAI team. And they were talking about, okay, now we're going to make 100 trillion 
trend parameter model, you know, as big as the brain, isn't that exciting? But uh, the chinchilla paper by DeepMind came out and argued that you can actually make a model that's just as good as GPT-3 with only 70 billion parameters with a lot more training data. And so if you want to efficiently train a hundred trillion parameter model, not only is your model going to run slower because it's a lot bigger, but you need a thousand times as much training samples to run through it. So you've basically increased the compute by a million fold. And I would think that's a little bit sort of on the high end. I mean, you, you predict that out, you look at how hardware advances, you say, well, maybe in 30 years we'll, we'll actually be there. I agree we might get there in less than 30 years. We might have something that's competitive with human thought maybe in 20 years. But that's still um, you know, a lot of hardware to go and a lot of software advances to pull things in by a decade. Um, and so, you know, yeah, there'll be new papers, new best papers at all the machine learning conferences, but you know, I don't expect any of them are going to take us all the way there. Now, so another thing we can talk about is, well, even if we go through this slowly, how, how sure are we will we'll go through it safely, right? And that's a big challenge. Do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event? Thomas Fry and me, Trent Fowler, are both seasoned keynote speakers able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels. Go to the contact page at futuratipodcast.com to book Thomas or myself today and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely true. Sam Harris did a good job of, of making that point. If, if you got mm. a if you got, um, and it's, it's not original to him. I, I had a similar sort of thought that he did a really good uh, job of sort of encapsulating it. Like if we got messages from Andromeda, from, from an alien civilization, mm. this is, we'll be there in a hundred years, get ready. Like <laughs> it's not clear. Okay, okay. So that's a long time, but is it long enough? I mean, just because it's a hundred years, that doesn't mean it's enough time to solve a problem. Like my God, mm -hmm. how would you even begin to, to think about something like that? So I, I think that's, you're absolutely right. Uh, that will probably need to be a conversation for another time though, where we're coming up on time here. So where, where can people go to learn more about the, the great work that you're doing? So I'm on LinkedIn, Steve Comrush. I'm also on Google Scholar. You can see some of my papers and patents. And Leela AI has a website where we talk about the, the work we're doing now and the, the products we have. So that's thanks fantastic. for having me. I, I, yeah, I really appreciate it. Uh, anytime you want to come back ne next time, uh, OpenAI knocks our socks off. You're, you're welcome to, to come back and, and talk us through it. Yeah, this was very fascinating. Yeah, it's an interesting set of discussions. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Steve. Thanks. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.